This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on 2023? Mark, what the hell is actually going on? Well, first of all, Happy New Year to all our listeners. We're glad to be back after our brief hiatus between Christmas and New Year's. And we're not going to have a guest today. We're talking about the best and worst things that Joe Biden did in the previous year. So every year I write a column for the Washington Post, actually two columns, one listing all the best things that the president did in the previous year and one listing all the worst things. I started it under Trump because basically I was looking for a way to not work during Christmas week and find something I could write early so I could have it in the can. And it ended up being the most popular columns I did at the Washington Post. And I kept the tradition going out for Joe Biden. The negative things were quite obvious. The good things. It, it took a little more work, but I found 10 good things that Joe Biden did as president. So uh, we can talk about them. That's definitely where we should start. We'll get through that, I suspect, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, even the blind squirrel finds an acorn and Joe Biden found 10. So uh, I listed them in my column. <laughs> Go for it. Give us the top 10. All right. Here's the top 10. Number 10. He acted to prevent a crippling national rail strike. So it wasn't exactly Reagan firing the air traffic controllers, but Biden did get Congress to pass bipartisan legislation forcing rail worker unions to accept the overly generous contract his administration negotiated. And that avoided a rail strike that could have crippled our economy and made inflation a lot worse. I'll be honest with you. I thought this seemed like a bit of a fake. It seemed like something where everybody was threatening and it looked totally clear where it was that we were going to end up with, yes, huge concessions and basically bending over for the unions, but not so far that it ended up humiliating the president, but at the same time also crippling the economy at a time that it couldn't stand it. So let me put it this way. I know this is only number 10, but I thought you were pretty generous. Thank you. Okay. Well, you know, it, it was an incredibly generous package that they negotiated. They got a massive, I think, a 24% pay hike. I'd love a 24% pay hike and yeah. uh, all, all the rest. And interesting that this was hanging over the administration right before the midterm elections. And somehow the unions decided to accept the contract offer and then only express their objections after the midterm elections, allowing Joe Biden to, to stop it. But uh, this could be... This, uh, this I'm shocked. So was this your, was this your moment? Was this your moment of discovery that the unions are in the tank for the Democratic Party? It was. <laughs> I finally, I finally learned. <laughs> you know what they say in Massachusetts: "Light dawns over Marblehead." <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. All right. Well, let's go to the next one. Number nine. He's sending B-52s to Australia to counter China. So uh, 
building on last year's historic AUKUS agreement, it's just a trilateral security agreement he reached with Australia and Britain to help Australia build nuclear submarines to counter China, which was in my top 10 list of good things Biden did last year. Biden announced plans to deploy uh, up to six nuclear-capable B-52s to a dedicated air base in northern Australia to help counter Chinese hegemony. Danny, you're in the uh, land down under right now as we speak. You agree with me? I really do agree with you. I think this was a great initiative by the Biden administration. I think it deserved to be in the top 10 last year. I think it deserves to be where it is this year. You know, this is the number one threat that we and our allies face. Yes, of course, there are a lot of very serious additional threats that you and I have talked about all year. But in terms of getting serious about China, you know, yay. There's always more that can be done, but let's applaud what gets done. We'll, we'll continue with the, uh, the China theme with the next one. Number eight. He launched a full court press against China's domestic semiconductor industry. So Biden blocked U.S. companies from selling chips and semiconductor equipment to China. He also cracked down on China's Thousand Talents program to recruit U.S. science and technology experts by issuing export control rules that prohibit U.S. citizens from supporting China's advanced chip development, which cuts off the flow of Silicon Valley expertise. This is going to severely curtail China's ambition to develop its own cutting edge semiconductor industry, which I think is good for U.S. national security. No, I think it's fantastic. And, you know, look, I think Congress did a lot of this. Congress didn't do it in a frankly, a a terribly expert way. He thought that the CHIPS Act was an incredibly weak piece of legislation that could have stood for a great deal of improvement. But this is an area where China once again has us by the short hairs because of their looming threat over Taiwan, which is where most semiconductor chips are, are made. And so, you know, again, we need to start clawing this back, just like we need to start clawing back, you know, pharmaceutical production, just like we need to start clawing back PPE. That doesn't mean we need to make it all in America, but we need to make sure that we're not dependent on China. Number seven, he signed the first bipartisan gun legislation in decades. So after the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, Biden signed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which was co-sponsored by Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, and Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut. And that law protects the rights of lawful gun owners while cracking down on criminal misuse of firearms. It includes incentives for states to implement red flag laws, increase funding for mental health and school safety, added scrutiny of gun buyers who are under 21 or domestic abusers and stronger penalties for straw buyers and gun traffickers. What do you think, Danny? So I got to be honest with you, Mark, you know, you and I have talked about this in the context of stuff that didn't get done in the Obama administration. I suspect we haven't talked about this, you and I together, but I suspect I'm probably to the left of you on gun control issues. I find it inexplicable that Congress is incapable of moving forward on common sense controls. I also find it absolutely inexplicable that the Obama administration that exploited this issue left, right and center was incapable when it had a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate and a Democrat in the White House of doing the kinds of things that Democrats love to stand up and grandstand about in the wake of some of these horrible tragedies that happen. So, you know, for me, this is pathetic. I'll be honest with you. 
No, I think it's not pathetic at all. I think it actually is. First of all, he didn't do it. One of the interesting things is that Chris Murphy, when when they were negotiating the bill, told the White House to stay out of it. <laughs> so he signed it, so he gets credit for it. But but it was really a bipartisan effort in Congress. But I'm sorry, Danny, you, you want tougher gun control regulations and go repeal the Second Amendment. Well, you know, again, I don't think it's a question of the Second Amendment. I think it's a question of having much better controls on on the kinds of people who are able to get a hold of guns. The fact that it took Uvalde to get Congress to take this little step is pretty sad. Number six. And this is one that is near and dear to your heart, Danny. He secured extradition of the terrorists charged with the bombing of Plan M Flight 103, which killed 190 Americans. A Libyan intelligence operative, Abu Aguila Mohammed Massoud, who is suspected of building the explosive device used in the 1988 bombing over Lockerbie, Scotland, is the first terrorist linked to that attack to face justice in the United States. This is something uh, that you, when we worked on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, you were deeply involved with working with the families of Pan, uh, Pan Am 103. Uh, tell me what you think of this, Danny. 35 years is a long time to wait for justice. Our policies towards Libya have been inexplicable to me for a very, very, very long time. And if if you think about those families, and I, I dealt with them, you know, if, if folks don't remember, and a lot of folks don't remember 1988, this was a, a flight from London to the United States, a lot of kids coming back from their semester abroad. A, a bomb dropped on Libya in vengeance is nothing. It doesn't bring your kid back. And yeah, great. Great that they've got him. Good that they stayed on the ball. Good that it, it mattered enough to the Biden administration 35 years later. But boy, is this justice delayed. Well, but it is justice and it finally happened. And it's good that we that we never give up and that we finally achieved it. So good for him. Number five. He kept Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps on the U.S. list of foreign terrorist organizations. So President Trump listed the IRGC in 2019 as part of his maximum pressure campaign after he withdrew from Obama's 2015 nuclear deal. And Iran demanded that Biden delist the IRGC before it considered returning to compliance with the deal. And despite his misguided efforts to revive that agreement, Biden told Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett in April that the IRGC would remain on the list and the decision was absolutely final. Your thoughts, Danny? So I agree with this wholeheartedly. I think there was actually a lot of pressure on Biden internally, partly because everything that Trump did in the eyes of this Biden administration was terrible by virtue of the fact that Trump did it. There was no, there was never any intrinsic judgment about the quality of his actions from the Biden administration. It was a hard call on the part of the Trump administration. And I think it was a much, much harder call For Joe Biden, kudos to him that he had the courage to keep this up. Number four. He won support for Finland and Sweden to join NATO. He still has to manage Turkish intransigence, but Biden got both NATO allies and a 95 to 1 bipartisan majority in the Senate uh, to support admission of the two Nordic nations to the Atlantic Alliance, which is a major blow to Russian President Vladimir Putin, who opposes any NATO expansion. Uh, This is just another way that the Putin invasion of Ukraine has backfired on Russia. And I think this is a great move. Amen. Simple as that. Keep going, baby. All right. Number three, he killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. And of course, 
Zawahiri was living openly in Kabul because uh, of Biden's disastrous Afghan withdrawal. But 11 years after opposing the mission to kill Osama bin Laden, Biden ordered the drone strike that took out bin Laden's right-hand man and successor. He also took out the Islamic State leader in northwest Syria and resumed full ground operations alongside our Kurdish partners, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which has kept a check on the Islamic State in the region. Those are good things for uh, our national security, Danny. Good and totally deserved. Anytime we see you know, the forces of terrorism, the forces of evil overseas being targeted by the United States, I am thrilled. Number two, he declared the United States will defend Taiwan, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times since taking office, most recently in September. Biden vowed that the U.S. military would defend Taiwan if communist China attacked. So I know that the White House aides have tried to walk back Biden's comments every time. But as far as I'm concerned, president of the United States is elected. They're not. He said it over and over again. The policy of strategic ambiguity is dead and it is now. Uh, U.S. policy to defend Taiwan against unjust aggression. I, you know something? I, I mean, look, I totally agree with the policy. We've had great conversations with, with a whole bunch of people about Taiwan. But I have to say, as a constitutional study, this issue has been staggering. The president of the United States, I don't care if he's mental, okay? And, you know, God knows. We've had a couple. But <laughs> I don't care if he's mental you know, I repeated that great line that I heard from Bill Clinton's White House, right? America may be a democracy, but the executive branch is a dictatorship. That's right. The way that the White House has tried to walk him back on these things is a disgrace. The only thing that I really worry about is that in the event, he might not do the right thing. But yeah, his instincts are all good. His instincts are good on this. Well, Yay. you know, it's funny. It's funny, Danny, because remember back when Barack Obama drew his red line on Syria, saying that the red line for him would be the use of chemical weapons against innocent civilians. That was actually not a planned speech. He just blurted that out in an interview. And what happened was it wasn't planned. It wasn't planned to be rolled out as a red line. And the White House aide said, well, that's now the policy of the United States. They publicly said, OK, the president said it. It's now. Now, he didn't enforce it. <laughs> it. It took Donald Trump to enforce his red line against the use of chemical weapons. But at least they like actually saluted and said he's the commander in chief. He said it. This is now our policy. Not like one time. This is one time is a gap. Four times is pretty, pretty definitive. And they keep going out and like rolling it back and saying, no change in policy. He didn't say what he said. He didn't mean it. You know, it don't, not only undermines him as the president and sort of raises questions over whether they think that he's mentally competent for the job, but it, it sends a message of weakness when they do that. Yeah, it's bizarre as hell. It's bizarre. It's wrong. And it's humiliating to the president of the United States, which makes it even worse. So... Yeah. What can I say? I agree with you. We should have a good policy. The president articulated a good policy. There we go. Number one, he saved Ukraine. Now, Biden's handling of Ukraine tops my best and worst list this year. So let's reserve the criticism for when we get to the negative, the worst list. But here's the best. After Russia invaded, Biden rallied our allies to support Ukraine's self-defense. He provided arms, money, intelligence, diplomatic support, and he stopped Putin from seizing Kyiv. At the start of the conflict, I remember we woke up every morning to see whether Kyiv had fallen, and nobody thought that Ukraine could survive. 
And today, here we are, a year, you know, almost a year later. And not only has Ukraine survived, they're on the offensive, retaking territory from from the Russians that the Russians unlawfully seized. So lots of flaws in his Ukraine strategy, which we will get to when we discuss the worst list. But Biden deserves credit for saving a free and independent Ukraine. He does indeed. He does indeed. There's a lot to discuss. And as you say, plenty of conversation on the worst list for what he hasn't done right on Ukraine. But he deserves credit. And especially because, again, there are a lot of people in his administration who actually didn't want to save Ukraine, didn't want to do the right thing. And he ended up doing the right thing, perhaps not as well as we would have liked. But, you know, listen, we could have done plenty worse. A a good policy badly executed is better than a bad policy. That's for sure. All right, Mark. Now I know you're itching. I know it. (laughs) Before we get to the worst, I had to give Biden credit for one accomplishment that didn't make the list because this is a list of good things Biden did. Uh, But this deserves grudging admiration nonetheless. Despite the worst inflation in 40 years, the worst collapse in real wages in four decades, highest gas prices on record, worst crime wave since the 1990s, worst border crisis in U.S. history, Joe Biden turned in the best first midterm performance of any president since John F. Kennedy, except George W. Bush after the 9-11 attacks. That is an impressive and frustrating achievement for me. Yeah, except except for the fact that that wasn't Joe Biden's achievement. That yep. was Donald Trump's achievement. Yes, <laughs> that was Donald Trump's achievement. And that was not an endorsement of democratic policies. That was a rejection of the candidates Republicans put forward. But nonetheless, he goes down in history with the best midterm performance of any president since JFK. Yep. And justice deserved that, as I mentioned. So you did the right thing. All right. Now, can we get to the worst? Now the fun part. (laughs) So the worst presidency in my lifetime got worst in 2022. Here are the 10 worst things that Joe Biden did as president of the United States in 2022. Number 10. He presided over a plethora of disasters. So as I just said, on Biden's watch, we experienced the worst inflation in 40 years, largest decline in real wages in four decades, highest gas prices ever recorded, biggest annual rise in food prices since 1979, worst labor shortage in American history, worst crime wave since the 1990s. I mean, truly, Danny, not since Jimmy Carter has a president unleashed so many calamities at one time. So I can't disagree with you about the calamities. I guess For me, Joe Biden isn't the worst president in your lifetime. So I guess that's sort of a qualified disagreement. I think I think that Barack Obama deserves that place of honor for ushering in the most divisive, the most nasty, the most hostile era in American politics in certainly the last century. But I want everybody to think about this for a second. Yep. That litany of disaster and what you just said prior to the worst 10 list, the best performance in a midterm election except for George W. Bush after 9-11. Imagine to yourself, those disasters and the GOP still couldn't win. Damn, yep. you, should do a, you should do a top 10 GOP screw-up edition as well. Well, I did that on Fox News uh, on election night. <laughs> amen number nine 
He called Georgia's election law Jim Crow 2.0, which was a vicious lie. So despite Biden's ugly and false claim, early voting in Georgia shattered its record for midterm elections with black voters making up 29% of early voters. I mean, I remember when the Georgia election law passed, he gave that speech in January comparing Republicans who supported the law to racists and segregationists and traitors. Uh, he, He said they were standing with Bull Connor and all the rest of it. Major League Baseball pulled the all-star game and the MLB draft, which cost the Georgia economy $100 million. And Georgia, most of most hardest hit were the black and minority-owned businesses around the ballpark uh, that lost all that revenue that they would have had from the all-star game. I mean, it was just an absolute disgrace. He owes Georgia an apology. Well, they're A, they're not going to get it. And B, again, I come back to what I said before. This is the era that Barack Obama ushered in, the era in which we have the worst relationship between Black Americans and white Americans that certainly I can remember in my lifetime. And I remember the 60s, the racialization of every disagreement that is a shameless repudiation of Joe Biden's inaugural speech, you know, in which he pledged to bring the country together and then has spent the last two years doing nothing but trying to divide Americans, calling conservatives racists, calling them bigots. It boggles my mind. I would have put it higher. All right. Well, uh, let's go. Let's go on to the next one then. Number eight. He and his party urge Republicans to reject extremists while promoting them in GOP primaries. So the Democrats spent tens of millions of dollars supporting mega candidates in GOP primaries, hoping they would be poison pill candidates that they would that would be easier to defeat. Um, it was one of the most cynical, immoral political strategies and that I can recall. It also worked because all of those mega candidates lost. But it's just absolute hypocrisy for the president to give these speeches, you know, saying that MAGA Republicans are a threat to our democracy, while at the same time, his party that he leads spending tens of millions of dollars to get them nominated, saying Republicans reject these people. I I like regular Republicans. I just don't like these MAGA Republicans. But then they spend all this money trying to get MAGA Republicans nominated. And it's just a disgrace. Well, it might be a disgrace. But it was a shrewd strategy that worked for them, as you as you rightly say. So I guess in the annals of disgusting cynicism, it certainly deserves a mention. But in the sense that they played a dirty game smarter than the GOP. Right. Success uh, makes it okay, Danny. I didn't say it was okay, but I do think that it merely piggybacked on the awful ideas that were already out there. They didn't go out there and pick those candidates. Those candidates were already in the running. And the reason they were in the running is something we've already discussed. Let's move on to let's move on to number seven. Number seven. His administration discharged thousands of troops for refusing coronavirus vaccination. So this year, the army fell short of its recruitment goals by 25 percent, 15,000 soldiers. Pentagon testified that we are facing the worst military recruitment crisis in 50 years since the inception of the all-volunteer force. Yet more than 3,000 battle-hardened troops were needlessly forced out. 
Congress and the omnibus has stopped the coronavirus vaccination mandate in the military, but they fell short of restoring those troops. We've got a military recruitment prices. We've got rising China. We've got all these threats around the world. Why on earth will we be pushing out battle-hardened, experienced troops out of the military over a vaccine mandate when we know that the vaccine really doesn't prevent transmission of the virus anymore. It, it's good. It prevents you from dying. But it, as Marty McCary has explained to us on this podcast, it's no longer something that is preventing other people from getting sick. So it just the, the vaccine mandates make no sense. And particularly in the military, they make no sense. So this brings up so many things that make me angry. But let's just go back for a second to the justice in Pan Am 103, 35 years later, right? When are we going to see some justice for the harm that was inflicted on the American people by overzealous, dictatorial, extremist health lunatics over the last two years. You know, when I look at the military, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Those guys are serving, okay? Commander in chief wants them to do something stupid. That's terrible. It's stupid. It's dereliction. It's bad. But to me, that pales in comparison to what they did to America's children, and especially the poorest, the minorities that they pretend to care for the most. Amen. Number six. He begged foreign despots to produce more oil while weakening domestic production. So Biden incredibly lifted sanctions on Venezuela and is allowing Chevron to produce and export Venezuelan oil again. This is the man who told us that the defining feature of his presidency was a battle between democracy and autocracy. But he's begging Venezuela to produce more oil so he can lower gas prices here at home for political purposes. He begged OPEC to produce more and had that embarrassing visit to Saudi Arabia where the Saudis basically told him to go pound sand. And all the while, he's leased fewer acres of federal land for oil and gas drilling than any president since World War II. He's waging a war on fossil fuels here at home while begging foreign dictators to produce more oil so that he didn't have to suffer uh, the political consequences of rising gas prices. Ridiculous. Yeah, it's like the broken cookie doesn't have any calories. <laughs> but that, of course, is true. <laughs> At least I hope it is. Ah, yeah. It's ridiculous. And here's the dirty secret that they don't want you to know. They like high gas prices. They didn't want the political consequences of high gas prices, but they want high gas prices, just like they raised the price of smoking of cigarettes, because if the price goes up, they think that people will stop smoking. And if the price of gasoline goes up, people will buy electric cars. And so what they're doing in this incredibly cynical way, it's like if you let Chevron produce more Venezuelan oil or get OPEC to produce more, they don't have to do anything here at home that would encourage long-term fossil fuel production, that would keep us in the game of fossil fuel longer here. So they don't want to do anything domestically that increases our productive capacity because they want us to get off fossil fuels. They just didn't want the political costs of it. So they just go out and find, well, let's get other countries to produce the oil for us. And so we're going to have jobs in Venezuela and jobs in in Saudi Arabia that could be jobs in Texas and Oklahoma and and the United States. And it's the same freaking carbon footprint. (laughs) I'm sorry, does Venezuelan oil contribute less to global warming than American oil? Let's not forget, 
What's gross about this? Like what's gross about upping the taxes, you know, sin taxes on sodas and on cigarettes is those things don't hurt people who have a ton of money. Those hurt the poor, you know, and maybe for everybody's health, it's better that the poor don't smoke and that the president decides they shouldn't smoke. But gas prices affect them more. People who can't who have to make choices between food and getting to work. You know, this is it's a disgrace. And it's a regressive tax. Being, being unable to stick those claims to, to Joe Biden in the midterm. That's a regressive tax. Well, speaking of regressive taxes. Number five. So in an unconstitutional power grab, he canceled up to one trillion dollar in student loans. So his order, which is is now being contested in the courts, he would force blue collar workers to subsidize the higher education of white collar professionals. And he's doing it using a 9-11 era law called the HEROES Act that was passed in 2003 that was intended to help men and women who were called up to active duty to fight the terrorists who attacked us on September 11th to make sure they didn't default on their student loans while they were in active duty. And he's taken that law and applied it to millions of people in this country who never wore the uniform. It's not only is it unconstitutional, not only is it regressive, it's an act of stolen valor. Yuck and yuck again. No argument here. Since I'm on a rant, he told a reporter that, yeah, I passed it by one or two votes. (laughs) He did it by executive fiat without without any input from Congress. But you know what this shows also, Danny, which is that the Democratic Party is no longer the party of the working class. It is the party of the elites. This is a move that has the cafeteria worker in the hospital you go to paying for the medical school loans of the doctors working in that hospital. The janitor in your school paying for the college loans of the well-to-do parents who are picking up their kids from school. It is so disgusting. It is so regressive. And if you ever wanted proof that the Democratic Party is no longer the party of the working class, Democrats would never have done this 20 years ago. No, it's totally, apart from anything else, apart from apart from that whole Constitution thing, it is completely tone deaf. It's amazing. Number four. He has failed to avenge the Kabul airport bombing that killed 183 people, including 13 Americans. So after that attack, Biden warned those who carried out the attack. This is a quote. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and we will make you pay. Well, it's been a year, more than a year since the U.S. withdrawal. Where are the over horizon strikes against ISIS-K, Danny? I remember hearing that we were going to have this wonderful campaign of over the horizon strikes against any terrorists who threaten us. This was such a debacle that they just don't want to do anything to remind anybody about Afghanistan. They just want Afghanistan to disappear from the map. And they have done nothing to avenge this killing except a strike right after that ended up killing no terrorists and like a dozen kids. It's it's just such a disgrace. I mean, the, Afghan, the whole Afghan withdrawal is a disgrace. But the fact that we've done nothing, the president made this declaration and has not followed through at all is just absolutely disgraceful to me. But I mean, for me, look, Mark, that there is a theme here in this entire discussion, and it is the disconnect between the highfalutin rhetoric of this administration and its actions on the ground. You know, Forget about the 13 Americans, okay? Forget about the bombing that killed 183 people. This is an administration that you have already said, you know, 
claims that the fight of democracy versus autocracy is its most important mission. I hate to give them the news flash about what's going on with the Taliban in Afghanistan. This is an administration that talks about the rights of women as if it is something handed down by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. And yet the what rights of women are being so steadily eroded in Afghanistan because we withdrew and this administration is doing nothing about it. They don't care about women. They don't care about the poor. They don't care about democracy. They don't care about comedy and kindness between Americans. There is nothing that gets said in these big speeches that you see enacted in their policies. It's absolutely disgraceful. Amen. Number three, he signed into law an inflation reduction act that will not reduce inflation or climate change. So this whole inflation reduction act, I mean, first of all, the name is a lie, but it was all cover for a massive climate spending bill. But we found out as it was studied by experts, nonpartisan experts, including the Penn Wharton model, that it's going to have zero impact on inflation. And then I interviewed Jorn Lomberg for my Washington Post column, who went in and plugged this into the climate models. And he found that the climate spending in this bill will reduce the rise in global temperatures by, wait for it, 0.0009 degrees, next to nothing. So not only does his Inflation Reduction Act not reduce inflation, it doesn't have any impact on climate change. It's just a massive sop to the climate lobby and the climate radicals in his party to spend almost $2 trillion on wasteful projects in order to uh, feed his base. (laughs) What can I add to that? You know, look, this is bullshit masquerading as statesmanship. The fact that this got through Congress, the fact that this got past Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema is amazing to me. But that is a testament to the fact that if you want to protect the country from this sort of radical spending, you actually do need a workable majority in Congress. Keep going. Number two. He made the worst border crisis in U.S. history even worse. So in fiscal 22, there were almost 2.4 million encounters at the southern border, 600,000 known gotaways, which are people who we know evaded capture at the border, 98 people on the terror watch list who were stopped near the border. More than 800 migrants died crossing the border illegally. Yet when asked why he hadn't visited the border, Joe Biden said, and I quote, I had more important things going on. I mean, what's happening on our southern border, it's intentional. It is disgraceful. It is a humanitarian tragedy for the migrants who are who are being attracted to come over here. And it's getting worse. And now been in fiscal year of 2023 since uh, October. It's even worse now than it was in 2022. It was really interesting. I went back and looked at the historic numbers when previously governments had suggested that there was a crisis at the border. This is from Andy McCarthy's column in in National Review. And he, he writes, to provide some perspective, during the Obama years, the Department of Homeland Security regarded it as a crisis if the number of illegal alien encounters inched up to a thousand per day. In other words, 365 
thousand a year. And Jay Johnson, who was Department of Home Security Secretary, said a thousand a day overwhelms the system. Now we are looking at a number that is seven times that on a daily basis. So if it was a crisis back then at a thousand, it's more than seven thousand a day now. That's insanity. And and by the way, my most liberal friends agree entirely about this. A country is defined by its borders. Okay? What you do by letting people in and then putting them at risk, putting their families at risk, putting jobs at risk, and putting our border at risk is insanity. I can't understand why the Biden administration doesn't want to get control of this. Well, first of all, it's so self-defeating because I think everybody agrees that our immigration system is broken and that we need to change the way we admit people into this country. I, and I think I speak for you as well, think we should be having more immigrants coming in legally into this country, but we should be choosing those migrants in an orderly fashion being fair to the people who are waiting in line and following all the procedures in order to get here. And we should be bringing in people to help our economy in ways that we need. We should be choosing the people coming into our country, not just simply opening our Southern border up. And there is no chance whatsoever that Congress is going to do anything about the dreamers, about reforming our immigration system to make it both more welcoming and more competent and all the things that need to be done when, I, when we have an open border on our southern border, the prerequisite for any kind of uh, immigration reform, forget comprehensive immigration reform, any reform is a secure border. And yet Biden, who claims to want to have immigration reform, is opened up the border to anyone who wants to come over and is undermining the chances of getting anything done in Congress in a bipartisan way. It boggles the mind. This has been a rolling disaster for many years now. But again, I don't understand why he doesn't want to do something about it. I'll be honest with you. Let's get on to number one. Number one. All right. He slow rolled military aid to Ukraine out of a pathological fear of provoking Vladimir Putin. So I gave him a number one was on his best list was saving Ukraine. It's also number one on his worst list. So this this is a guy who refused for months Ukraine's request for Stinger and Javelin missiles before Russia invaded. Then after Moscow attacked, he offered President Zelensky a chance to escape, to which Zelensky reportedly replied, I need ammunition, not a ride. Then he forced Ukraine to defend itself for months, primarily with antiquated Soviet weaponry, yet he blocked Poland from transferring Soviet-era fighter jets because he was terrified that U.S. support would cause World War III. Uh, Zelensky, at some point in the spring, asked, what is NATO doing? Is it being run by Russia? Because the aid was so slow in coming. He waited for more than nine months to give Ukraine just one, one patriot air defense system, which allowed Putin to destroy schools and homes and hospitals and critical infrastructure. And then when he finally did deliver these game-changing high-mobility artillery rocket systems, HIMARS, they had been secretly modified so they couldn't fire long-range rockets, and he still refuses to give them attack missiles, which have a longer range, because they could theoretically reach Russia. He refuses to give them M1 Abrams tanks, which is allowing the Germans to avoid delivering tanks to advanced tank to Ukraine because they don't want to go first. And 
you know, there was that scene, Danny, when Zelensky came to the White House, they had the joint press conference and the Ukrainian reporter asked Biden, can we just make a long story short and give Ukraine all the capability to liberate its territories sooner rather than later? And Zelensky said, I agree. And then Biden went on to explain how this would divide the allies and start World War Three and all the rest of it. So he's dragging out this conflict allowing thousands of civilians to die, and it's delaying Putin's defeat. You wrote a great article in Foreign Policy about this. Give me your thoughts. So all of the things that you detailed, the slow rolling, I think one of the things that was a big theme toward the end of last year was, ooh, the Republicans are going soft on Russia, and this is going to be a really big problem. And there's no question that there are Republicans who are going soft on Russia, who are not as tough as is necessary on Ukraine. But one of the things that I detailed in that piece, and thank you, Mark, one of the things I detailed in that piece is Every time the administration has reversed course and decided to give tougher equipment, harder, longer range, more capability to Ukraine, it has been because of Republicans in Congress who have threatened and conjoled and begged and pushed and increased money and topped up resolutions all in order to try to get this job done because you know they rightly point out and you said the same thing for every day this goes on more men women and children die for every day that putin feels like he has a chance to keep going he represents a threat to us and to our allies in europe and This is, again, a chance where the United States could have lived by the words of Joe Biden's inaugural, lived by his principles that the battle of democracy versus autocracy is one of the most important ones we can fight. But instead, and always in secret, always dishonestly, they have slow rolled and to this day are continuing to slow roll weaponry to Ukraine. The president should be ashamed of himself. There are so many apologies he owes, but one of them is to the people of Ukraine. A hundred percent. I interviewed Mike Gallagher for my Washington Post column recently, who's the incoming chairman of the House Select Committee on China. And one of the points he made was, you know, when I asked him, explain why is winning in Ukraine so essential? And he said, China. (laughs) This is, you know, China is watching this. And, you know, what happens in Kharkiv doesn't stay in Kharkiv. There's no Vegas rules here that Putin's defeat in Ukraine will deter, will help deter China from trying the same thing in Taiwan. Whereas if Putin is able to succeed in some way or force some sort of negotiated settlement, which allows him to get territory, then that in turn will embolden China. This has global implications and it has humanitarian implications because it's dragging out the war. And it's, it's like Joe Biden doesn't want Ukraine to lose, but he doesn't kind of doesn't want Russia to lose either. And he, he doesn't feel like he can push Zelensky into negotiations, though I'm sure there are people within the White House who want to do that, pressuring him to go to the table. If Zelensky negotiated with Putin and came up with some, some deal that gave him territory, he'd be thrown out of office. The Ukrainian people, all the polls show they think they can win. They want to win and they're, they want to keep fighting until they do. So I just, I just don't understand why it's like pulling off the Band-Aid slowly. I mean, Putin can't win this war, so let's defeat him. Exactly. Listen, you know, <laughs> there is no substitute for victory, to coin a phrase. That's really clever, Danny. You should write that somewhere. 
I should I should be a speechwriter somehow. Listen, Thanks. this has been you you've done a wonderful well, before job. Before we go, I, I actually I love these columns. Do you want to do your honorable mentions? So coming up with ten was was so hard to limiting this to ten. I had a list of dishonorable mentions, and my editors made me cut it back because they were like it's like it's like really the top twenty, Mark. <laughs> but I just want to give you in one sentence first what what the dishonorable mentions were. So here they are. He engaged in a weak and pathetic hand-wringing at a Democratic fundraiser about his fears that Putin might start a nuclear war. He traded an arms dealer for a hostage in Russia. He undermined public support for Ukraine by blaming the war for high gas prices. He fecklessly depleted the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to its lowest level since 1984 to lower gas prices before the midterm elections. After he assured us that al-Qaeda was gone from Afghanistan, We found al-Qaeda's leader living openly in downtown Kabul thanks to his catastrophic withdrawal. He did nothing to deliver on his promised support for Afghan women. He did nothing to support Iranian women rising up against the clerical regime in Iran. He did nothing to address the damage done by pandemic school closures that wiped out decades of educational promise. And after promising to put his whole soul into uniting the country, he compared Republicans to racists, segregationists, and traitors. Those are the dishonorable mentions that didn't make the top 10, Danny. Yes, he's given you a lot of fodder. I I don't I don't know what to expect for the coming year. I, I don't know what to expect. They've done some good things for sure. And the Republicans have been a major disappointment for sure. Can it get worse? Mark, is it gonna get worse? Here's the thing that I worry about, Danny, is that neither party has learned the lessons of the election, right? So the Republicans, the lesson of the election should be that we need to empower the the people who got elected were forward-looking conservative reformers like Ron DeSantis, like Brian Kemp, like Mike DeWine, who are focused on the future and not on electoral grievances of a and false claims of a stolen election. And in the House right now, because the majority is so narrow, it's the nut jobs who seem to be in charge. Kevin McCarthy is, you know, to try and save us, this will come out right after after Tuesday, after his vote. But he's actually agreeing to he's it's been reported, he's agreeing to a rule that any five members can bring up a motion to throw him out of office in order to get the speakership, which means that the nuts will be running the asylum. The fringe extremists in the Republican caucus will be in charge. So Republicans haven't seemed to learn the lesson yet, though polls show that support for Trump's candidacy has been plummeting. So maybe we'll get our act together and not nominate him again. The Democrats, when Biden was asked after the election, what are you going to change? You know what he said? Nothing. They think that they did so well because people like their policies. They don't like their policies. They just hated the Republicans more. (laughs) I mean, there's something to aspire to. Fantastic. I think you've put it succinctly. There were a lot of lessons to be learned. There was a moment for introspection for both parties. There was an opportunity for both the White House and the Republican leadership to actually think about what went wrong. And instead, everybody turned around and went, wow. We seem really awesome. So yeah, we can look for more stupid in the year ahead, more dangerous, more feckless. It is as if the country that they're playing with doesn't really matter at all, that our leadership in the world isn't important, that the economic well-being of the American people is an incidental matter to their personal priorities. We deserve a better class of politician from soup to nuts 
and uh, I hope that with both with your really great new series at the Post, interviewing you know up and coming new leaders, but also that we can actually talk about some of the issues that can take us beyond ranting to some constructive, better policies. Well, that's what we're going to be doing on this podcast in this brand new year. It's 2023, first week of 2023. Uh, we've looked back on 2022. Now we start looking forward and we're so happy that you're joining us again this year. And we wish you all a happy new year and looking forward to what's to come. See you next week. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.